take our Bibles at this time and turn to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, where we'll take for ourselves a bit of extended reading today and being gone for a couple weeks and wanting to at least try to stay as close to the catechism schedule as we can. Uh, we're going to combine Lord's Days uh, 3 and 4 this morning. But making mindful throughout that history and even being able to see from the fall until now the destruction that is promised before Noah. To be able to look at that and see the progression of that sinfulness and to stop and be mindful again of our need. Of of this becoming that lasting or that landing point in terms of misery. Setting the stage for the unfolding then of, of salvation and of grace. And so needing to be met plainly and surely And certainly unapologetically this morning with the truth that we would be driven to him. So let's hear then these words from Genesis 3 and 4 and 6. So we'll read from 3 to 4.16 and then we'll flip over to Genesis 6 verses 5 through 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. Where his word says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man 
And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree, the way to the tree of life. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. And his face fell, and the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know him. I'm my brother's keeper. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And then let's turn over to chapter 6, verses 5 through 14. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out the man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's also turn in the back pages of the Trinity Psalter Hymnal to page 873. Page 873, and to the question and answers belonging to Lord's Days 3 and 4. And so in the middle of the left column on page 873, question 6 asks, Did God create man so wicked and perverse? No, God created man good and in his own image, that is in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might truly know God his creator, love him with all his heart, and live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. Then where does man's corrupt nature come from? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Yes unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. But doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? No. God created man with the ability to keep the law. 
man, however, the instigation of the devil in willful disobedience robbed himself and his descendants of these gifts. Will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. He's terribly angry with the sin we are born with as well as our actual sins. God will punish them by a just judgment both now and in eternity, having declared cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. But isn't God also merciful? God is certainly merciful, but he is also just. His justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. Thus far, our confession. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words, the words of your word which speak to us the truth of our state, of our hearts, of that which is apart from you. Lord, we thank you that you have made plain, even in the midst of that account of brokenness in so many different ways, of the fact that you are still working. You're working your will and way for a people that you have chosen for yourself, those born again of the Spirit of God. And so, Lord, as we hear this word, Father, we ask that you would open our ears and our hearts to it. That, Father, in being convinced of these things, Lord, we would be driven to the cross of Jesus Christ. And that as we go forth announcing the truth of this reality that we are in, Father, we pray, might we do so then, continuing to resolve in that conversation to lead others to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, congregation beloved of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as a child, and maybe not so much a child, as a young person, I used to do a lot of reading. I still do a lot of reading, but then I would do a lot of work in fiction. And certainly my favorite fiction to run to would be any kind of mystery novel or some kind of suspense thriller in that way. So certainly as many of you older men, our kids don't understand anymore, but the wonder of a Hardy Boys book taken out of the library. Later on, some Agatha Christie, and after that, a lot of John Grisham, that mystery Some of you Tom Clancy people, when you can break out of Louis L'Amour for a little bit, right? But there's that wonder then of what these stories are built on. Because we look and say, well, it's suspense and this. But if we look, especially at law books, here is typically murder and and brokenness and struggle and suspense books. Here are power struggles and, and evil ways of which to try to seek that and have that. And so I find as I'm getting older... I read a lot less fiction because I'm able to see all of that same brokenness in the world around me. I'm able to see it as a pastor writ large in my own heart. I'm able to hear it in the counseling that I do. I'm able to see it and hear it even in the churches when we gather to hear credentials matters at a classes meeting. And you hear the brokenness in other churches that men are seeking to lead their own congregations through. You see the wonder and the problem of that sin as such then I don't, I don't and certainly you don't need to read another account of, of fiction to figure out the brokenness of sin and misery. We know it because of the law of God that rolls off our tongue. We know that answer, but, but do we really know it? We know we're inclined by nature to hate God and neighbor. It's our foolishness. And that's when we're brought back to the words of 
of Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. It is the worst blasphemy. It is the worst of sins. And the denier of the Creator, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. This isn't some overstatement. This is the reality. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. And then hear that hopelessness. Hear the reality. They have all turned aside. Together they all have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. It's the gravity of Lord's Days 3 and 4. Scratch that, the gravity of the Word of God that has to land for us today. Every day. This is our state apart from the interaction of a holy God. And if this is all there is, if this is all there can be, there can only be judgment and suffering and eternal death. To use the original analogy in fiction, there can be no happy ending. And those always seem to be the worst kind of books, right? They resolve in this crud ending that you took all of this time to read through and you get to the end and you're like, what is that? Sin and misery is that. And so before the truth of a holy God, we must consider then the story of corruption. Of that which we, again, look at those fiction books and say, hey, this is what drives the action. It's what drives the... But it's real. It's the truth. And yet we read even these accounts in Genesis always longing for that redemption. Where's the grace? Where's the good news? How will God work even in this brokenness? And he does so with justice. You see, we make a false choice for ourselves. We want God to be holy, but we also want him to, to be good to us, even in the midst of our unholiness. We want mercy, but we don't want to talk about sin, but yet what we need to talk about is justice, that which is deserved for all of us, that which has to be meted out for all of us so that grace would be extended to those he has chosen to extend it to. And so we can't get away from it in any of these three narratives that we've read this morning. And so what we need to hear this morning, congregation, is that God's people must understand and proclaim a revealing story of corruption and justice. We have to make these things plain. We have to be transparent about it. This is what it is. This is what it is generationally. This is how it ends apart from the gracious intervention of God. We have to be able to speak a story effectively enough by the working of His Spirit to bring someone before their hopelessness, before their brokenness, if there is to be any way for them to be driven back to the Lord. And so in what we've read this morning, we need to understand and share the genesis of this story. We're going to read that in the Adam and Eve account or work through it there. The generations of that corruption and justice, which speak now to the Abel and Cain account. And then to the guilt of the story of being brought to those days in Noah 
and saying, how can anything good come from any of this? But it starts then, and I want to invite you to keep your Bibles open. We're not going to go through every verse in each of these sections. But to continue to pull out those things which advance an understanding of how do we tell this story effectively? How do we continue to bring people before what they need to hear? And so that first question, where does this sin and corruption come from? It has to come from somewhere. And yet, what do we do even in a similar way to what Adam and Eve do in this story? They are going to instantly shift blame. No, God, not me, the woman you gave me. No, God, not me, the serpent. And if you think that that kind of blame has stopped, you're living under a rock. Look at what people's hearts and minds and mouths are and actions, look how they are directed then towards blaming God. This is your fault. All of this is your fault. You've made us this way. You've given a law we can't keep. You're unfair. Is that what you read in Genesis 1 and 2? A God who is not good? A God who is unfair? A God who hasn't made all of that creation good and that mankind very good? Did God create man so wicked and perverse? No, we have to say this. There was a different way. There was a better way, one of true righteousness and holiness. To what end? That they would know God, not deny Him, not run away from Him, not blame Him. That they would love Him with all His heart. And live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and for his glory. That's where it starts. A good God who has made all things good continues to work good. There's no unrighteousness in him at all. But then we move and say, well, the devil made me do it. Right? This has to be Satan's fault. He's only deceiver. He doesn't take and jam any fruit in Eve's mouth, but he's crafty and deceptive, and he still is. Hey, you're going to be like God, a lie, which is bound up in the truth of what you are already made in his image. It looks good, doesn't it? Appealing to the eye, it's delightful. I will have something that's been kept from me. It is the way Satan continues to work. And so in the wonder and the beauty of creation now enters into that narrative, the brokenness of the fall. And she took and she ate. And she gives to her husband who does nothing. And he eats. And instantly what they are open to now in all of their heart and all of their mind is brokenness, is sin, is shame. It's the record of sin's beginning, the genesis of the fall and curse, the first expansion of corruption. And yet even now we still blame God. You required something broken. You require what can't be kept. They had one rule, one law was broken. Stumbling at one point, 
brought corruption for all. The marring of the whole created order. Separation between God and man. And he goes to them. He seeks them out. He asks them, what is this? What is this you've heard? What is this that you've done? God created man, as we just read, with what? The ability to keep the law. Man, however, the instigation at the temptation of the devil, and in what? Willful disobedience. Oh, is it really that bad? Willful, decided, intention, mind, heart, and body action intention. It's the nature of corruption. It's everything. Not just a little corrupted. Through and through in a moment. And in that they realize what? We're naked. And they know shame. And they hide from God. And they hide from each other. They shift blame for their disobedience. Sin brings about corruption and injustice but also God's response then of what? Of justice. And this is where we wrap our minds then, perhaps in a love of fiction, because, well, you can just fix that. Yeah, they rebelled a little bit, but you're God. You can write a better ending. You can do something better in this moment. Of course you can but not apart from his standard of holiness. You see, we want a happy story, but we don't want to have to deal with a holy God. And that's still where man is today. I want a happy ending, but I don't want to live in fellowship and communion and submission to God. Maybe that's some of our own hearts because we don't understand our own corruption and just how deep it really is. And so that fall brings with it the continued attacks of the evil one and pain and relationships that are broken and toil and trouble and death. It's the just judgment of God. It's what he said would happen. Dying, you will die. An act of death all the time. Man has sinned, transgressing the command and the character of God. We've become fools. We've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. There is no truth in us. But if that's all that happened at the beginning, and God would have had every right of intention at the end of chapter 3 to just end it. After the curse, done. I'm done with you. I'm finished with you. He can't stop being just. But he can be merciful. There's a hope of redemption. The Lord speaks that truth because he is the only one still holy. He's the only one that can satisfy himself. He's the only one that can make it right. And so here now comes redemption and promise. Kids, you've heard it now. Creation and fall. And now we come to redemption. And here in chapter 3 then is that perfect picture of it. He promises to work mercy in a mother promise. See it again, Genesis 3, 15. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman. You are not friends. You've listened to him. You've been tempted by him. You've given yourself to him. No. You're enemies. And the true offspring I will give to you are going to be enemies of his offspring. And I'm going to crush him. I'm going to end him. I'm going to end his effects. But it's going to come at great personal cost. The worst of pain. But I'm going to do that for you. He promises to save a seed through one he would send. A promise of life even for those who deserve death. And now when we speak that to the world, now it seems fairy tale. We've moved away from justice, corruption story to longing for a happy ending and now being like, mm-hmm. But the Lord provides a promise of mercy. And what is wonderful here is that Adam gets it. Why? What does he name his wife? Is she the mother of all the dead? She's the mother of all the living. And they've been promised children. That there would be generations. That there would be a seed. Yes, there would be toil and trouble, but I'm going to provide for you. And I'm going to feed you. And I'm even going to put an end to your sin. Mercy in the midst of my justice. Because you will die. And yet they're sent away. They have to be. Merciful and just, and yet there is still a way to the tree of life. Barred right now. But he will make a way. And in that way, we'd love the story to stop there. But there are generations to the story. Because in our own way, if we would write the story, we would just want God at that moment to just clean it up. I mean, many of you love to garden, some small, some massive, right? And there are those people who love weeding. I want this thing to be perfect. Let's take this out. Let's clean this up. I got straight rows. It's clean. Just take the weeds out. God, just take the weeds out of your story. Take the sin out. Take it now and let's just... But that's us. And it isn't just us, but I don't know how many of you parents have figured this out already, but when you had kids, they weren't perfect. No, in fact, our kids show us very quickly that they're just as broken and sinful as we are. Maybe we start to think even more so than us. You see, a holy God had every right to destroy what he had made and to start again. But instead he says, I'm going to make a plan of redemption. And so you're going to continue to propagate. There are going to be generations that come. But I'm going to choose a people to bring to the tree of life that they would not know forever death, but rather life abundant and eternal. But now we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. So as we come back now to Genesis 4, we recognize that while Adam and Eve have sinned, the Lord brings life. And this is a wonderful thing, yes, in pain and, and sorrow and whatnot, but here it is. 
Adam knows his wife, verse 1 of chapter 4. She conceives and bears Cain and says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I have gotten a man. I've gotten the one you've promised. Fix this, God, and fix it now, Cain. And yeah, we've got Abel. He's a vapor. Whatever. We've got our man. We've got our Cain. Kids, your parents say they don't have favorites. Here, Adam and Eve, Cain is the one. He's the one. He's going to bring deliverance. But it's broken. Already we see the sin of children. Right away. Not coming before the Lord. Not following after his way. Where does man's corrupt nature come from? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents. The fall has here it so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. This isn't a Cain thing. This is an us thing. Sin. It's the truth of Psalm 51 that we sang. I know my transgression, my sin ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And yet, what do we do? A world denies this truth all the time. They've just had bad examples. They've grown up in bad environments. You have a standard that is too high. They learn evil by imitation. No, they've been conceived and born in sin and find themselves under the same judgment that we would apart from the salvation of Christ as we stand before a holy God. We know there's death for all brought forth in iniquity. That nature will manifest itself in sinful deeds. The first man and woman gave themselves to rebellion, rejecting the truth of God for a lie, and Cain will do the same. I am not going to give my best. I am not going to submit to your authority. I am not going to do that which is expected of me at all. Instead of accepting responsibility, he shifts blame. Blame to Abel. Blame to everyone else. Which leads to what? To more sin. And that sin leads to more sin and more sin and more sin. To a response of anger and jealous rage, which ends in the first murder, in the senseless spilling of lifeblood, of the brokenness now of creation. So now we have a person who is seeking to undo what God has done. Creation, fall, redemption now becomes man takes and says, I'm going to be an agent of destruction. And I will mete out my standard of broken justice in what I want. And all that can bring about is guilt. Here is Cain deserving of justice and punishment. For will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. When was the last time that we told someone that God is terribly angry with the sin that we are born with as well as our actual sins? When will we speak truth that God will punish them by a just judgment both now and eternity? We have to make plain that curse. And if we take the time to consider that curse, if we're laying that out plainly, shouldn't every person that we have that conversation with come to the same response that Cain does? 
It's the beauty of the story that we don't think of very often. Which he says what? The punishment that you, God, have given to me is more than I can bear. What a fitting word, right? Would that we would all be brought to that point. That, that's the point. That's where our story has to lead people. This is the only end. This is the only reality that comes. And in being brought before that, there can be only one of two responses. Either I humble myself and I am driven to this God seeking the deliverance that I so desperately need. Or I respond like Cain because he walks away. He heads away from God and away from his family. Instead of leaving the presence of the Lord in light of such punishment, we, brothers and sisters, need to come to the Lord seeking mercy and grace and the intervention of a substitute. Because that's a part that we don't read, right? Abel's gone. Cain's gone. And now here's Adam and Eve saying, now what of the promise? And they're provided Seth, a substitute which speaks a far greater word than what that name could imply. They needed a substitute, one to come to make us perfect now, not just in being because he's still sinful too, but a better Seth who can make us perfect in the shedding of his blood and by his righteousness. Hear this testimony in Hebrews 12. But you all have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape him when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And so we have to deal with the generation to generation aspect of this. That certainly for us, we're not going to find more perfect kids. We're not going to get to another generation that's going to save all things. It's the false hope of this world. If I just provide my kids a better environment and more stuff, it's going to be better. Nope. Corrupt stock, corrupt seed. But what we need to hear in letting them know we're born bearing original sin, we commit actual sin, that we would stop looking at ourselves as though we are good. And stop looking at children as though they are innocent. But that we would look at all of them then, those made in God's image, who must be recreated in true righteousness and holiness through the blood of a better substitute, our Lord Jesus Christ. And what a wonder then that he gives a covenant promise to generation after generation after generation. The truth, not the reality when we baptize our children, but the reality of a promise. This is what has been given for that and for the guilt that is found in all of our story and that briefly in the last place. 
Because parents, hear this clearly, if you're not going to speak to your children, and if we are not going to speak to the world plainly of the realities of sin and the fall, we're doing them no good thing. None at all. In fact, apart from the working of God's word and spirit, we'd only continue in the evil we've been conceived and born in. Evil begets evil. And yet that guilt is not the Lord's. He's sovereign, but not the author of sin. He's righteous altogether. What he made was good. We broke it. The word that he has given is good. We dismiss it. The guilt is ours. And if that's the summary of the story you give to someone else this week, you've started in a good place. Because people aren't going to get better. Look at your Bible, Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, verse 5, and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. He sees outward actions. He sees inward realities. He sees how great the evil and darkness in those he's created really is. Every intention warped and broken by sin. Sin works the reverse of all things. Creation, fall, redemption? No. We're going to deconstruct what you've made because we're going to find redemption in ourselves. No. In fact, instead of everything praising the creator, it now curses him and opposes him. And so that story of corruption has to resolve in God's justice. Verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. And at this point, instead of humility, comes from so many people what? God, why would you create a world and allow it to fall into sin? Why allow corruption to continue? Why allow things to be this way? We join in shifting the guilt away from ourselves and we shift it to him. It's the same move over and over. Satan has come up with no new lies. The guilt is ours. We hate God and neighbor. We fall short of the glory of God. We deserve punishment in this life and the life to come. And yet we double down in sin and shame and guilt and then cry out against this God and demand he show mercy. Isn't God merciful, Pastor? Isn't God love? How many times do we hear this in regular conversation? Oh, don't judge. God is love. The guilt is ours. And yet we cry, oh God, you have to show us mercy. It's who you are. And so people make the demand without considering who we are and who we were created to be, but also the fullness of who he is. God is certainly merciful. Praise the Lord. But he's also just. Just toward Adam and Eve. Just toward Cain. Just now towards all of the people on the face of the earth. And yet, even into that reality, God extends mercy. It is unbelievable. If we got what we deserved, if we got who God really is, we would have zero expectation of that. And 
And yet, what do we read? Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Wholly dependent on God's choosing, his work, and grace. Noah's life speaking of the work of God, even as he walked with God. A God who is merciful, but also shows himself to be right in mercy and in judgment. Because you can't get away from verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. I have to do something about it. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. I have determined to make an end of all flesh. The earth is filled with violence. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. The Lord is just and righteous altogether. Every rebellious human deserves destruction in his own nature and sin. Justice demands that. Demands that sin committed against God's supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. That's where the story should end. And yet God says, I will work something that you don't deserve. And you can't understand that unless you understand our corruption first. He extends mercy, a way of deliverance, a way back into his presence, a way back to himself by the gift of water. Noah and his family were eight souls saved by water by the way of the gift of the Lord, a way that also serves to judge the world and destroy it. He's the same God. It's the same action. But some to salvation and to others condemnation. And that way is Jesus. The greater water, the greater ark, who saves us from our sins and will judge the living and the dead. Who will gather his chosen sheep and cast those goats to his left in their sin and common misery and rightly into eternal punishment. It's a just sentence. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Yes. Yes. If you've never heard that before, let that answer land this morning. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. That answer is the same in every generation. And the only hope of deliverance is the favor, choice, and grace of God in our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the only way. It's hope known in true repentance and lived out of his gift of faith. There can be no hope of mercy unless we're born again by the Spirit of God. And so, brothers and sisters, these stories speak clearly to the realities of corruption and judgment. Allow them to operate in your heart in that way. But let those same stories bring you again before the holiness and truth of our God. Before our need of a Savior. Before the necessary work of his Holy Spirit and his word. Don't diminish or set aside the truth of that corruption, of your corruption. But instead be driven to your knees to plead before the Lord in the promise to deliver his own, 
to bring us to himself in the snakehead crusher, the way to the tree of life, through the person who leads us not away from the presence of the Father, but to it, who is our ark, who is our water, who is our cleansing, who is our Savior. He's revealed this mystery to us. It's not fiction. And so may we believe it by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ Jesus alone. Amen. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the reality of which lands upon us this morning. That in that creation, fall, redemption rubric, Father, we see what you are working. And we recognize in our sin what we are bringing in brokenness to that equation, Father, that which is worthy of all judgment. Our corruption, Father, worthy of every bit of your wrath. And yet you chose, Father, to give a promise and to work that promise. To give signs and seals of that promise. To continue to proclaim your word and to give a word made flesh. That, Father, while many were wiped out, Father, you saved eight souls. That there is always a remnant, there is always a people, not saved of their own righteousness, but only that of the grace that you provide. And so, Father, we pray, may we be sobered in this understanding of our state, the state of our children and our children's children's children. But, Father, may that bring us then in a mindfulness to the truth, to the wonder that while sin and corruption are great, your grace is greater than all of our sin. And so, Father, would you work that reality in us even now? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.